Part Two, Chapter Five, Section One of Chancellorsville and Gettysburg. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Chancellorsville and Gettysburg, by Abner Doubleday. Part Two, Chapter Five, Section One, Battle of Gettysburg, the Second Day. The ridge upon which the Union forces were now assembling has already been partially described. In two places it sunk away into intervening valleys. One between Culp's Hill and Cemetery Hill, the other lay for several hundred yards north of Little Round Top, as the lesser of the two eminences on the left was called, to distinguish it from the higher peak called Round Top. At 1 a.m. Meade arrived from Taneytown. When I saw him, soon after daylight, he seemed utterly worn out and hollow-eyed. Anxiety and want of sleep were evidently telling upon him. At dawn he commenced forming his line by concentrating his forces on the right with a view to descend into the plain and attack Lee's left, and the Twelfth Corps were sent to Wadsworth's right to take part in the movement. It seems to me that this would have been a very hazardous enterprise and I am not surprised that both Slocum and Warren reported against it. The Fifth and Sixth Corps would necessarily be very much fatigued after making a forced march. To put them in at once, and direct them to drive a superior force of Lee's veterans out of a town where every house would have been loopholed, and every street barricaded, would hardly have been judicious. If we had succeeded in doing so, it would simply have reversed the Battle of Gettysburg, for the Confederate army would have fought behind Seminary Ridge, and we would have been exposed in the plain below. Nor do I think it would have been wise strategy to turn their left, and drive them between us and Washington, for it would have enabled them to threaten the capital, strengthen and shorten their line of retreat, and endanger our communications at the same time. It is an open secret that Meade at that time disapproved of the battleground Hancock had selected. Warren and Slocum, having reported an attack against Lee's left as unadvisable, Meade began to post troops on our left, with a view to attack the enemy's right. This, in my opinion, would have been much more sensible. Lee, however, solved the problem for him, and, fortunately for us, forced him to remain on the defensive, by ordering an assault against each extremity of the Union line. There has been much discussion and a good deal of crimination and recrimination among the rebel generals engaged as to which of them lost the Battle of Gettysburg. I have already alluded to the fact that universal experience demonstrates that columns converging on a central force almost invariably fail in their object and are beaten in detail. Gettysburg seems to me a striking exemplification of this. Repeated columns of assault launched by Lee against our lines came up in succession and were defeated before the other parts of his army could arrive in time to sustain the attack. He realized the old fable. The peasant could not break the bundle of faggots, but he could break one at a time until all were gone. Lee's concave form of battle was a great disadvantage for it took him three times as long as it did us to communicate with different parts of his line, and concentrate troops. His couriers who carried orders and the reinforcements he sent moved on the circumference, 
and ours on the cord of the ark. The two armies were about a mile apart. The Confederates, Longstreet and Hill, occupied Seminary Ridge, which runs parallel to Cemetery Ridge, upon which our forces were posted. Ewell's Corps, on the rebel left, held the town, Hill the center, and Longstreet the right. Lee could easily have maneuvered Meade out of his strong position on the heights, and should have done so. When he determined to attack, he should have commenced at daybreak, for all his force was up except Pickett's division, while two corps of the Union Army, the Fifth and Sixth, were still far away, and two brigades of the Third Corps were also absent. The latter were marching on the Emmitsburg Road, and as that was controlled by the enemy, Sickles felt anxious for the safety of his men and trains, and requested that the cavalry be sent to escort them in. This was not done, however. The trains were warned off the road, and the two brigades were, fortunately, not molested. There has been a great deal of bitter discussion between Longstreet, Fitz Lee, Early, Wilcox, and others as to whether Lee did or did not order an attack to take place at 9 a.m., and as to whether Longstreet was dilatory and to blame for not making it. When a battle is lost, there is always an inquest, and a natural desire on the part of each general to lay the blame on somebody else's shoulders. Longstreet waited until noon for Law's brigade to come up, and afterward there was a good deal of marching and countermarching to avoid being seen by our troops. There was undoubtedly too much delay. The fact is, Longstreet saw we had a strong position, and was not well pleased at the duty assigned him, for he thought it more than probable his attempt would fail. He had urged Lee to take up a position where Meade would be forced to attack him, and was not in very good humour to find his advice disregarded. The rebel commander, however, finding the Army of the Potomac in front of him, having unbounded confidence in his troops, and elated by the success of the first day's fight, believed he could gain a great victory then and there, and end the war, and determined to attempt it. He was sick of these endless delays and constant sacrifices, and hoped one strong sword-thrust would slay his opponent, and enable the South to crown herself Queen of the North American Continent. By nine a.m. our skirmish line, in front of the peach orchard, was actively engaged with that of the enemy, who were making a reconnaissance toward the Emmitsburg Road. No serious affair, however, occurred for some hours. Meade, as stated, was forming his lines on the right of the position he afterward occupied. The Fifth Corps, which came up about 1 p.m., was posted, as a reserve, south of the Twelfth Corps, with a view to the attack which has already been referred to. About 3 p.m. the Sixth Corps began to arrive from its long and toilsome march of thirty-four miles, and its tired troops were placed on the Taney Town Road, in the rear of Round Top, to reinforce the other corps in case our troops made an attack on the left. Lee, however, did not wait for Meade to advance against him, but boldly directed that each flank of the Union Army should be assailed at the same time, while constant demonstrations against our centre were to be kept up, to prevent either wing from being reinforced. It was another attempt to converge columns with an interval of several miles between them upon a central force, and, like almost all such enterprises, 
failed from want of proper cooperation in the different fractions of his line. Longstreet's attack was over before Ewell came into action, and although Ewell succeeded in temporarily establishing himself on our extreme right, it was due to an unfortunate order given by General Meade, by which the force in that part of the field was withdrawn just as Ewell advanced against it. But we are anticipating our narrative. Hood, who commanded the division on the right of Longstreet's corps, complains that he was not allowed to go past Round Top and flank us on the south, as he might have done, but was required by his orders to break in at the Peach Orchard and drive Sickles' line along the Emmitsburg Road toward Cemetery Hill. But it seems to me, as he started late in the afternoon, if he had made the detour which would have been necessary in order to attack us on the south, he would have met Sedgwick in front, while Sickles and Sykes might have interposed to cut him off from the main body. Before describing Longstreet's attack, we will give the final disposition made by General Meade when it became necessary to fight a defensive battle. The ridge was nearly in the shape of a horseshoe. The Twelfth Corps was on the extreme right, next came one division of the First Corps on Culp's Hill, then the Eleventh Corps on Cemetery Hill, with two divisions of the First Corps at the base, next the Second Corps, then the Third, and the Fifth Corps on the extreme left, the Sixth Corps being posted in rear of Round Top as a general reserve to the army. Sickles, however, denies that any position was ever marked out for him. He was expected to prolong Hancock's line to the left, but did not do so for the following reasons. First, because the ground was low, and second, on account of the commanding position of the Emmitsburg Road, which ran along a cross-ridge oblique to the front of the line assigned him, and which afforded the enemy an excellent position for their artillery. Third, because the ground between the valley he was expected to occupy and the Emmitsburg Road constituted a minor ridge, very much broken and full of rocks and trees, which afforded excellent cover for an enemy operating in his immediate front. He had previously held an interview with General Meade, and asked that an experienced staff officer be sent with him to assist in locating a suitable position for his corps. At his request, General Hunt, the chief of artillery, was sent for that purpose. They rode out to the ridge, and Sickles directed that his troops should be posted along that road with his centre at the Peach Orchard, which was about a mile from, and nearly opposite to Little Round Top. His right wing, under Humphreys, extending along the road, while his left wing, under Burney, made a right angle at the Peach Orchard with the other part of the line, and bent around so as to cover the front of Little Round Top at the base. The disadvantages of this position are obvious enough. It is impossible for any force to hold its ground when attacked at once on both sides which constitute the right angle. The diagram shows that the force A will have both its lines A1 and A2 unfilated by batteries at B1, B2, and must yield. The ground, however, may be such that the enemy cannot plant his guns at B1 or B2, but under any circumstances it is a weak formation and the enemy easily penetrate the angle. When that is the case, and it was so in the present instance, each side constituting the angle is taken in flank, and the position is no longer tenable. 
If one side of the right angle lies behind a ridge where it cannot be enfiladed, a temporary formation of this kind is sometimes permissible. Sickles claimed that he acted with the implied sanction of General Meade, who, however, censured the movement afterward. As soon as Sickles took position, General Buford's division of cavalry was sent to the rear at Westminster, to guard the trains there, and Kilpatrick's division was ordered to Hunterstown to attack the rebel left. Sykes' Corps, the fifth, came up from the right about 5 p.m., soon after Longstreet's attack on Sickles was fairly under way, and formed along the outer base of Little Round Top, with Crawford's Pennsylvania reserves at their right and front. There had been a council of war, or conference of corps commanders, called at Meade's headquarters, and it was universally agreed to remain and hold the position. As the Third Corps, in answer to the guns of Clark's battery, was suddenly assailed by a terrible concentrated artillery fire, General Sickles rode back to his command, and General Meade went with him. The latter objected to Sickles' line, but thought it was then too late to change it. The severe artillery fire which opened against the two sides of the angle at the Peach Orchard was a prelude to a furious attack against Ward's brigade on the left. This attack soon extended to the Peach Orchard. The fight became very hot against Burney's division from the left to the centre, but the troops on the right of the centre, Humphrey's division, were not at first actively engaged, and Humphreys reinforced Burney with one of his brigades, and subsequently with a regiment. The battle, which now raged among these trees, rocks, and ravines, was so complicated that it is hard to follow and difficult to describe the movements of the contestants. Some idea of it can probably be gained by an examination of the following diagram. It will be seen that a long line of rebel batteries bears upon A, and that one of them was brought up to enfilade the side AB. The angle at A, attacked by Barksdale on the north and Kershaw on the west, was broken in. In consequence of this, several batteries on the line EF were sacrificed, and Wofford's brigade soon came forward and took the position DE. The Confederate line being very long, and overlapping Ward's brigade on the left, the latter was forced back, and the exulting rebels advanced to seize Little Round Top. They attacked the force there with great fury, assailing it in front and rear, but they were ultimately repulsed, and finally took up the line GL. Two divisions of the Fifth Corps and one of the Second Corps were sent in, one after the other to drive back the strong rebel force posted from D to G, but each one had a bitter contest in front, and was flanked by the rebel line at D E, so that ultimately all were obliged to retreat, although each performed prodigies of valor. Indeed, Brooks' brigade charged almost up to the enemy's line of batteries, H I. The rebels gained the position, I G, confronting our main line and close to it, but a fine charge made by Crawford's division of the Pennsylvania Reserves drove them farther back, and as part of the Sixth Corps came up and formed to support Crawford, the rebels gave up the contest for the night as regards this part of the field. The attack against Humphrey's division which followed the breaking in of the angle at A will be described further on. The general result was that Sickles' entire line, 
together with the reinforcements sent in at different times to sustain it, were all forced back to the ridge which was our main line of battle, with the exception of Crawford's division, which maintained a somewhat advanced position. The details of this contest are full of incident, and too important to be wholly omitted. About 3.30 p.m., the rebels commenced the movement against our left, by sending a flanking force from Hood's division, formed in two lines, around to attack Sickles' left, held by General J. Hobart Ward's brigade, which occupied the open ground, covering the approaches to Little Round Top. Ward's line passing in front of the mountain, and his flank resting on a rocky depression in the ground called the Devil's Den. The right extended to the minor spur or wooded ridge beyond the wheat-field. The engagement was furious. Commencing on the rebel right, it extended to the left, until it reached the peach-orchard, where it became especially violent. This central point of Sickles' line was held by eleven regiments of Burney's and Humphrey's divisions. Burney's two brigades, commanded by Graham and de Trobriand, held on bravely, for the men who fought with Kearney in the peninsula were not easily driven. But the line was too attenuated to resist the shock very long, and reinforcements became absolutely necessary to sustain that unlucky angle at the peach-orchard. Sickles had authority to call on Sykes, whose corps was resting from a long and fatiguing march, but the latter wished his men to get their coffee and be refreshed before sending them in and as those who are fighting almost always exaggerate the necessity for immediate reinforcements, Sykes thought Sickles could hold on a while longer, and did not respond to the call for three-quarters of an hour. It would seem that Lee supposed that Meade's main line of battle was on the Emmitsburg Pike, and that the flank rested on the Peach Orchard, for he ordered Longstreet to form Hood's division perpendicular to that road, whereas Sickles occupied an advanced line, and Sykes the main line in rear. McLaws says that Lee thought turning the peach orchard was turning the Union left. With this idea, he directed Longstreet to form across the Emmitsburg Road, and push our troops towards Cemetery Hill. Kershaw, after the minor ridge was taken, reported to Longstreet that he could not carry out these orders without exposing his right flank to an attack from Sykes' corps. Ward fought bravely against Benning's and Anderson's brigades on the left, driving back two attacks of the latter, but his line was long and weak, and the enemy overlapped it by the front of nearly two brigades. Being concealed from view, from the nature of the ground they could concentrate against any point with impunity. He attempted to strengthen his forces at the Devil's Den, by detaching the ninety-ninth Pennsylvania from his right, and, although de Trobriand had no troops to spare, he was directed by General Burney to send the 40th New York, under Colonel Egan, to reinforce that flank. Egan arrived too late to perform the duty assigned to him, as Ward had been already driven back, but not too late to make a gallant charge upon the rebel advance. The fighting soon extended to the Peach Orchard, but as it commenced on the left, we will describe that part of the engagement first. General Warren, who was on Meade's staff as chief engineer, had ridden about this time to the signal station on Little Round Top, to get a better view of the field. He saw the long line of the enemy approaching and about to overlap Ward's left, 
and perceived that unless prompt succour arrived, Little Round Top would fall into their hands. Once in their possession, they would flank our whole line and post guns there to drive our troops from the ridge, so that this eminence was in reality the key of the battlefield, and must be held at all hazards. He saw Barnes' division, which Sykes had ordered forward, form for a charge, and about to go to the relief of de Trobiand, who held the centre of Burney's line, and who was sorely beset. Without losing a moment he rode down the slope, over to Barnes, took the responsibility of detaching Vincent's brigade, and hurried it back to take post on Little Round Top. He then sent a staff officer to inform General Meade of what he had done, and to represent the immense importance of holding this commanding point. The victorious column of the enemy was subjected to the fire of a battery on Little Round Top, and to another farther to the right, but it kept on, went around Ward's brigade, and rushed eagerly up the ravine between the two Round Tops to seize Little Round Top, which seemed to be defenceless. Vincent's brigade rapidly formed on the crest of a small spur, which juts out from the hill, and not having time to load, advanced with the bayonet, in time to save the height. The contest soon became furious, and the rocks were alive with musketry. General Vincent sent word to Barnes that the enemy were on him, in overwhelming numbers, and Hazlitt's regular battery, supported by the 140th New York under Colonel O'Rourke, of Weed's brigade, was sent as a reinforcement. The battery was dragged with great labour to the crest of Little Round Top, and the 140th were posted on the slope on Vincent's right. They came upon the field just as the rebels, after failing to penetrate the centre, had driven back the right. In advancing to this exposed position, Colonel O'Rourke, a brilliant young officer who had just graduated at the head of his class at West Point, was killed and his men thrown into some confusion, but Vincent rallied the line and repulsed the assault. In doing so he exposed himself very much, and was soon killed by a rebel sharpshooter. General Weed, who was on the crest with the battery, was mortally wounded in the same way, and as Hazlitt leaned over to hear his last message, a fatal bullet struck him also, and he dropped dead on the body of his chief. Colonel Rice of the 44th New York now took command in place of Vincent. The enemy having been foiled at the centre and right, stole around through the woods and turned the left of the line, but Chamberlain's regiment, the 20th Maine, was folded back by him, around the rear of the mountain, to resist the attack. The rebels came on like wolves, with deafening yells, and forced Chamberlain's men over the crest, but they rallied and drove their assailants back in their turn. This was twice repeated, and then a brigade of the Pennsylvania Reserves and one of the Fifth Corps dashed over the hill. The 20th Maine made a grand final charge and drove the rebels from the valley between the round tops, capturing a large number of prisoners. Not a moment too soon, for Chamberlain had lost a third of his command and was entirely out of ammunition. Vincent's men in this affair took two colonels, fifteen officers, and five hundred men prisoners, and a thousand stand of arms. Hill, in his official report, says, Hood's right was held as in a vise. We will now return to the peach orchard. In answer to a shot from Clark's battery, 
a long line of guns opened from the eleven batteries opposite. Graham's infantry were partially sheltered from this iron hail, but the three batteries with him in the beginning, which were soon reinforced by four more from the reserve artillery, under Major McGilvery, were very much cut up, and at last it became necessary to sacrifice one of them, that of Bigelow, to enable the others to retire to a new line in the rear. Graham still held the peach orchard, although he was assailed on two fronts, by Barksdale's brigade on the north and Kershaw's brigade on the west. A battery was brought forward to enfilade Sickles' line on the Emmitsburg Road, and under cover of its fire Barksdale carried the position, but was mortally wounded in doing so. Sickles lost a leg about this time, 5.30 p.m., and Graham, who was also badly wounded, fell into the enemy's hands. The command of the Third Corps now devolved upon General Burney. A note here. Barksdale soon after was brought into my lines, and died like a brave man, with dignity and resignation. I had known him as an officer of volunteers in the Mexican War. As a member of Congress, he was very influential in bringing on the rebellion. End of the note. The batteries under Major McGilvery, which lined the cross-road below the peach orchard, were very effective, but were very much shattered. Kershaw captured them at one time, but was driven off temporarily by a gallant charge of the 141st Pennsylvania of Graham's brigade, who retook the guns, which were then brought off by hand. Bigelow was ordered by Major McGilvery to sacrifice his battery to give the others time to form a new line. He fought with fixed prolong until the enemy were within six feet of him, and then retired with the loss of three officers and twenty-eight men. Phillips' battery, which had joined his, had a similar experience. McLaws bears testimony to the admirable manner with which this artillery was served. He says one shell killed and wounded thirty men, out of a company of thirty-seven. The capture of the peach orchard necessarily brought the enemy directly on Humphrey's left flank and de Trobriand's right. The disaster then became irremediable, because every force thrown in after this period had to contend with a direct fire in front and an enfilading fire from the right. End of section one of chapter five.